Good morning. I invite you to turn with me um, to 1 Corinthians in your Bibles. If you do not have one, there are some in the back that you um, can either borrow or take if you need one. Um, And this morning we will be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is our next big adventure together. 1 Corinthians, where Paul begins and in verse 2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth. I believe that by the design of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians grants us a rare opportunity to, in a sense, intercept other people's mail, to really eavesdrop with God's permission to eavesdrop in on a conversation that's happening between other people. But this conversation is taking place, as we read into it, in the middle, in the middle of an intensifying conflict between the Apostle Paul and the church that he had planted in the city of Corinth. As you, be, as you read through this letter, you'll discover that Paul had already written them a previous letter. You'll also discover that they, that the church in Corinth, had written Paul a letter prior to this one. And we all know, uh, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Paul would write a subsequent letter to this one. We call that Second Corinthians. So this letter, what we now call First Corinthians, was the middle letter of at least three letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. The middle of at least three. So how should we read other people's mail? Right? Busy buddies would say very carefully. But how do you read mail that was intended for somebody else? Well, because this mail is scripture, because we believe it is the divinely inspired word of God written through a human being to other human beings. Because of that, we got to be mindful of two things. The first is Culturally speaking, it wasn't written to us. And we don't have the entirety of the correspondence. Only two of these letters have survived by the design, the unsearchable wisdom of God. So culturally speaking, it wasn't written to us. But theologically speaking, God wanted us to read it. All of God's scripture is useful and good. 
And so the essence, the essence of what the Apostle Paul communicated in this letter to the Christians at Corinth 2,000 years ago, the essence of it still applies today. And at the very beginning, the essence of Paul's introduction to this letter, to this famous historical letter, the essence of it is this, that the grace of God is for the people of God. God's grace is for his people, not simply for me, not simply for you as an individual, but God's grace is for God's people. It is for us. That is something Paul communicates to them right off the bat, right in the beginning of the letter. And it's something we need to take to heart as we begin to explore the entire letter all over the next several months. Now, here's what you need to know about ancient Corinth. It was strategically situated right on a strip of land, an isthmus that connected mainland Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And so because of that, it was a bustling cosmopolitan seaport that controlled the trade of goods between Asia and Italy. Because sailing, sailing south around the Peloponnesian Peninsula was, navigationally speaking, treacherous. So Corinth prospered. It was a center of culture and athletics and commerce and finance, trade a very important ancient Greek city. And as a Greek city, in 146 BC, it was destroyed. It was demolished by the Romans for its disrespectful attitude. But about 100 years later after that, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar had the city rebuilt as a Roman colony. Now, that's very important for us in our understanding, because as a Roman colony, Caesar repopulated Corinth with freedmen. Freedmen from Rome, that means poor former slaves who were making Rome too crowded and too hectic. They sent them off and started a new colony in Corinth with former slaves, poor people and ex-military War veterans. So, so that, that's the new society, war veterans and former slaves. And because of its location, it, it kind of sprang up overnight. It became prosperous and successful. So about 100 years after that, when the Apostle Paul visited Corinth in the middle of the second century, according to one scholar, Corinth had a mixed ethnic population of Roman freedmen, indigenous Greeks, and immigrants from far and wide. Naturally, then, uh, it was a religious melting pot. There were statues and temples all over Corinth dedicated to the many to a pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. Because now, culturally speaking, it's a mixed society. It, it's 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 a Greek city, but really, it's it's a Roman city. And so, the pantheon of gods uh, were, uh, were worshipped. Mystery cults uh, from Egypt uh, were a fad there. Probably the most important religious idea, though, was emperor worship, uh, because in that society, political power was considered to be divine. One preserved Corinthian inscription read, we magnify every God. Now, if you read in the New Testament Acts, the book of Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 18, you'll discover that Paul planted a church in Corinth during his second missions journey about the year 50 AD. 
And uh, he spent 18 months in Corinth making tents. That was his that was his trade beyond being an apostle. That's how he made money for himself. He made tents with his new friends, Aquila and Priscilla, two believing Jews. And he preached there in Corinth and he made disciples and, and he built with his associates. He built a church. He planted a church there. So a few years later, probably when Paul was on his third missions journey, spending time in Ephesus, across the sea in Ephesus, from Ephesus about 54 AD, Paul writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, And so you really have a letter here written to a church that was, like us, less than five years old. It's composed mostly of Gentiles, a few Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, but mostly Gentiles who had been recently converted from complete and utter paganism. That's all they knew. They were pagans through and through, less than five years before, had become disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul was faced with a massive task of resocialization. Paul, in, like in most cases, was re-socializing this church. Now, look, I am not a sociologist, so I'm going to keep this very simple, mostly for myself. Uh, but socialization, in my understanding, socialization is the process by which we learn what a society's or a social group's overall sense of reality is. What is true? What is good and right and wrong? And what is beautiful and what is valid? And, and what is not acceptable and what is acceptable. And we learn this from a very, very, very early age. And, and uh, we keep learning it in different degrees uh, as we get older. Resocialization is, is basically unlearning the reality that you've learned. Uh, resocialization is replacing the former reality you believe to be true with another social group's reality. So a mild example of re-socialization would be going to college, going away to college, um, moving to a foreign country, uh, living in and among uh, a different ethnicity for the first time. Severe examples of re-socialization would be joining the military and going through boot camp or going to prison would be a drastic example of re-socialization. So, really, re-socialization is replacing everything you've always believed to be the ultimate reality, the grand story of the world, the meaning of life, the meaning of your life, what's right and wrong and good and beautiful and true. All of that, taking all of that and replacing it with a new reality, a new story, a new purpose. And changing your thinking and your behavior based upon that new reality. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in his letter to the church in Rome when he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the task of every Christian. Doesn't matter where they live and when they live, this is the task of every Christian. 
And Paul's task in writing this letter was to remind the church in Corinth of it. Don't be conformed to the world anymore. Be transformed as the Spirit of God renews your mind and the way you live. The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, wrote this. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. So that's really, for now, what you need to know about ancient Corinth. Still, as I asked before, how should we read other people's mail? Well, when it's scripture, when it is the word of God, we must read other people's mail by distinguishing. We have to make a distinction between what was applied to them culturally and what applies to all people universally. There were cultural applications to them living at that time in that place, and there are universally true applications for us now where we live at this time in history. Here's what you need to know about us, at least in part, what you need to know about us. Although Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth back then, the foundational principles behind the applications, behind what he was advising them to do and commanding them to do, the foundational principles behind all of that carry forward to us. So when you read verse 2 in his introduction... He says to the church of God that's in Corinth, and you go, oh, well, that's not us. That's not me. Okay, hold on. Keep going, because now this becomes us. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, this applies directly to us. This is a universal principle that we must now apply to where we live, when we live right now as a church and as individuals. Jesus Christ makes you a new individual. When you give yourself to Jesus, the New Testament clearly shows us that Jesus literally makes you a new human being, a new creation, as Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. The personality is still you. The temperament is still you. The biology, the physiology, you know, the cells, it's still you. The vices, the temptations, the struggles, it's all still you. But Jesus has literally given life to your dead heart, has made it alive by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead so that quite literally speaking, spiritually speaking, Jesus Christ has resuscitated your soul. It's still you, but you are a new human being. The old has died on the cross with Jesus Christ. The new you has risen from the dead when Christ rose from the dead. Jesus makes us new individuals, but it doesn't stop there. As you read what Paul's saying is Jesus brings you as a new human being into a new community of others whom he has worked with in the very same way, very different people who he has resuscitated from death to life. And as a new community, we share together in this new identity. It's not just you, it's us. And it's not just us here. 
A new community that is part of a new humanity because Jesus across history in all places with all nationalities, ethnicities, languages, backgrounds, uh, jobs, professions. Jesus is making a new humanity. So Paul is saying to them what is true for you and I, that they are new creatures in Christ who are part of a new faith community that is part of a broader faith humanity that Jesus is building ever since he came out of that empty tomb. And when, when you see these words sanctified, called to be saints, they don't apply to some special class of really, really well-behaved spiritual super Christians like Mother Teresa. They apply to every single one of us because words like sanctified, called to be saints, they mean holy. You know what holy means? It doesn't mean really well-behaved. Holy means plucked out. It means ripped out from the rest of the world and set apart, recommissioned, reassigned by God for his special purposes. And to be reassigned by God for his special purposes in history and in your community, in your life, in your profession, where you teach, where you work, where you study, where you live, where you fight and argue. To be commissioned by God, it means you must be re-socialized by his Holy Spirit to begin to understand what God thinks is real. What God says is true and good and right and wrong and eternal and temporary. But in this sanctifying process, no one of us should be alone. As you read Paul's words, it should be obvious to you that the me becomes us. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours is what Paul says to them. So the Lord Jesus Christ makes us new individuals who are brought into a new community, who are a part of a new humanity, a foretaste of what's going to happen when Jesus returns someday. This is, this is what Paul tells them in his introduction to this letter. You're new people. You're a new community. You're a part of a new humanity. Why does he go there? Why is that his focus for starters? It's because he's preparing them to hear some really hard stuff. This is a rough letter. And so Paul begins by talking about unity by the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's what else you need to know about us. We actually have more in common with the ancient Corinthians than you might think. Remember I had said that Julius Caesar repopulated Corinth in the first century B.C., repopulated Corinth with freedmen, with poor former slaves, who for the first time in this vibrant port city, in this up-and-coming ancient metropolis, had the opportunity to do something that they had never been granted the opportunity to do before. Make something of themselves. Prosper. Thrive. Develop. Enterprise. Now they have the opportunity to do something like that. According to one New Testament scholar, Paul was writing to a church in a city 
only a few generations removed from its founding by colonists seeking upward social mobility. Now, if that doesn't sound like America to you, colonists seeking upward social mobility. I mean, think, think about our culture. American culture is, it's, it's a cultural, political, commercial, religious amalgamation of, to keep it simple, Europe and Native American culture and African American culture. That's, that's collectively what we are. Like those Corinthians, all of us, all of us are descendants of climbers and strivers. All of us are descendants of peasants and oppressed people from other parts of the world who, who couldn't make a good life for themselves there. And so they came here. Some of us are, some of us, our ancestors were slaves here and had no rights. Upward social mobility is, I think, perhaps what Americans value the most, what we pride ourselves in. The hope, the hope that you will become, that, that you will achieve more and climb higher than your parents and grandparents did. And that your children will exceed you. Isn't that what we say? I'm, I'm so proud of my children. Look, look at where they've, look at what they have amounted to when I think of what I've seen and, and what my grandparents saw. Look at what my children have become. And quite often, we don't mean that in spiritual terms. We mean it in social and economic and political terms. Upward social mobility. Now, look, I'm not trying to malign any certain American values. If the Apostle Paul confronts any of them in his letter, I'll speak to it. But there are aspects of our society's priorities, of its ambitions, of of its self-bestowed liberties that directly oppose the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ represents. There are attitudes and ambitions and self-bestowed liberties in our culture that are opposed to the radical allegiance that Jesus Christ demands of anybody who follows him. As Paul wraps up his his introduction in verse 9, he reminds them, and I'm reminding you, that if you're a Christian, you are called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The fellowship means the partnership, union with Jesus Christ. And unless our old individualistic tendencies are not transformed... By this partnership, this fellowship, this union with Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't happen, then our Christianity is going to be deformed. Our faith, our worship, our service, our connection to one another. And our representation of Jesus to the community where you work and your relatives. And the people we serve together. It'll be deformed. It'll too much resemble our prideful past. And that's why Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthians, because their Christianity was deformed. It looked way too much like the people they had used to be before Jesus plucked them out. 
Now, here's what you need to know about Jesus. Talked a little bit about what we need to know concerning Corinth and concerning ourselves. Here's what you need to know for now about Jesus Christ. When pride and selfish competing and divisions abound and hurt us, Jesus levels the playing field. He gives us all a reason to stop boasting, to stop complaining about one another, to stop noticing all of our awkward differences. He levels the playing field with his grace. Right in the heart of Paul's introduction, right in the middle, like a flaming sword, is verse 3, where Paul just simply greets them. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In conventional Greek letters, this is the part where Paul would simply write, Greetings to the church in Corinth. But with these two special words, Paul transforms the conventional salutation into something quite different. Grace to you. Peace to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you know this grace, the word grace summarizes all that God has done for us in history and through his son. God's unmerited favor, God's irrevocable kindness and mercy to you, God's forever unending love and faithfulness to you by the death and resurrection and life giving spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. Peace. It, it came from the old Jewish greeting, shalom, prosperity to you, peace, fullness to you. And so Paul combines the Jewish and the Christian to say grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fullness to you, prosperity to you, not by competitive upward striving. They needed to hear that. They were Corinthians. You need to hear that. You're Americans. Not prosperity and peace by competitive striving. Prosperity and peace by the grace of God. That is a very different thing altogether. And we will begin to learn as we read this letter what that means, what grace and peace from God are all about. With grace and peace, God is remaking humanity, re-socializing humanity by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He wants nothing less for you. He wants nothing less but the utter transformation of your mind, your behavior, your priorities, your life. He won't settle for anything else. He loves you too much. He won't let you be a Corinthian forever. Your identity has changed. You're still acting and thinking like a Corinthian. He wants you to change. And he will do it because Paul says, Paul says he is faithful. And Paul says he's coming back. Those are important themes that the Corinthians also had to see. We'll discover it as we begin. So for now, understand that what Paul said to them does apply to us that God's grace is for his people. Not just you, not just me. But for us, God's grace is for us. And we need to start thinking less like individuals and more like a community. 
Jesus calls them to us. Jesus calls us to himself. He calls us to one another. And he calls us to Christians everywhere. So now that we've intercepted this letter, now that we've begun to eavesdrop in on what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, let's listen. Let's listen to the words as Jesus changes our thinking, our behavior to be a community of grace and peace. So stay tuned. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you for wisdom to, to comprehend, to understand these ancient words to an ancient group of people. Living in a society far removed from our own, uh, Father, help us to read into uh, this letter uh, the meaning that was originally intended. But I pray that we would not stay there. Uh, because study for the sake of study is more idolatry, Father. It must change us. It must change us. It must draw us more in love with your Son, more dedicated to Him and His view of reality and life and meaning and purpose and beauty and truth and goodness. Uh, Father, teach us His understanding of all these things that is, as it applies to our relationships, to our professions, to our worship and our service to our conflict, to our sexuality. Father, please do a mighty work in us as we begin to think like a people. Lord, may we achieve by the Spirit of Christ reconciliation, unity, healing, understanding, wisdom by your grace. Amen.